0: Good morning. Uh, Today's reading comes from Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Well, it was a normal Thursday afternoon for Harvardford Middle School student Molly Creed. Now, Molly was doing some homework uh, in her school when her teacher uh, told her she needed to follow her to the library to help her find a book. But when she got there, a big surprise was waiting for her. Her father, uh, Major Patrick Creed of the U.S. Army, had been deployed to Ukraine last year. Uh, He'd been gone for many months and not expected to return for many more. And yet, when Molly entered that library, there he was, smiling, holding flowers. After looks of confusion and shock, a big smile spread across her face. Uh, Here is the moment when she uh, threw herself in her father's arms. Uh, You can see the... The joy that filled her heart to, to be together with her father again in his presence. And for that family, uh, Patrick Creed's presence in their lives changed everything. It brought them immediate and overflowing joy uh, just to be with him this kind of reunion i think will hit home for many of us as uh, many of us have been separated from loved ones uh, for a number of years due to covid restrictions do you remember what it was like uh, to see uh, your family's faces again for the first time after years apart to feel their embrace uh, the joy that it brought you Well, today, as we come to look at our next section in the book of Matthew, we'll see that Jesus' presence brought a similar kind of joy and celebration to his disciples. In fact, Jesus' presence on earth brought a new kind of joy altogether, a supernatural joy. The past few weeks, we've been seeing in Matthew that Jesus is a king who has great authority and power. As he has power over nature, over demons, over sickness and disease, even to forgive sins. But this king doesn't use his power to kind of uh, beat people into submission. He uses it to bring people great joy. I wonder how your current joy level is this morning. If we're honest, it's probably not where we'd like it to be. Who doesn't crave a greater joy in their lives? A, and not kind of a fleeting joy, but a supernatural one. a One that isn't based on circumstances. A joy that doesn't come and go with the seasons, but undergirds everything we do. What I want us to see this morning is the good news that Jesus' coming brings true and lasting joy. A joy that his disciples experienced when they were with him then, And a joy Jesus invites each one of us into this morning. To do this, I I think we see three ways in which Jesus brings this joy. You'll see those there in your handout. And so if you're a Christian, uh, my prayer is that as we walk through this text, our joy in our Savior will increase and your enjoyment of him will grow. Whatever circumstances you face at the moment. And then if you're not a Christian, I pray you'd see something beautiful about Jesus and his invitation into supernatural joy. And so, first, uh, we see that Jesus brings the joy of union with God. Uh, Look with me at verse 14 and 15. You'll see them up on the screen. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. If you were here with us the past couple of weeks, we saw Jesus doing some pretty unexpected and surprising things. We saw Jesus choose Matthew to be his disciple, a hated tax collector. We saw Jesus feasting with other sinners. The Pharisees ask him, how is it that you are eating with these kind of people? And now there's more confusion. We're told that uh, John's disciples come to him. uh, These would be John the Baptist's disciples, uh, those who would have been helping uh, John the Baptist spread the news of repentance to make themselves ready for the Messiah. And they come to him with a particular concern. Verse 14, they say, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Uh, To fast in those days uh, would be to abstain from food in order to uh, repent, to seek God. Uh, This was done in times of mourning or great sorrow, uh, expressing your sadness over your sin, uh, your desire, your your calling out for God's mercy. You can think of maybe the Ninevites uh, putting on sackcloth and ash uh, to show their shame. All of God's people were commanded in the law to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. Jesus and his disciples certainly would have uh, done that. But uh, devout and really godly Jews in Jesus' day would do additional fasts, uh, usually two of these every single week. And it's these additional kind of non-required fasts that John's disciples and the Pharisees were doing, Uh, this is what they ask Jesus about. I think you can imagine some of their confusion. Like, why are you guys not doing this? You call yourself spiritual? You don't even fast like we do. Uh, Maybe they thought, surely, uh, this can't be the Messiah. Uh, God's chosen one would be more religious than us, not less. Well, Jesus replies with his question of his own in verse 15. He answers, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. So according to Jesus, uh, these guys have completely misunderstood the situation. Jesus is saying there's a celebration going on here. Uh, Don't you see it? It's like a wedding, and the bridegroom has come. A wedding is a time for joy and feasts, not not for the sorrow and grief expressed in fasting. I mean, can you imagine mourning at a wedding? Why can Jesus say this? Why is it a time for joy? Well, if you know your Old Testament, like uh, the Pharisees and religious leaders would have in in this day, uh, the word bridegroom would be ringing some bells for you. By referring to himself in this way, uh, Jesus links up with the whole Bible theme, a theme in which God's relationship with his people is likened to a a husband's relationship to his wife. Uh, Jesus is saying there is an actual wedding of sorts going on here. Through the Old Testament, God reveals that he actually desires relationship with humanity. And not just a casual one. Uh, God wants a union so close, uh, he describes it as spousal love. God is the bridegroom, and his people are the bride. God's people, if you remember in the Old Testament, were unfaithful to him over and over again. uh, But he promised that one day he would win his bride back. We see this a number of places in the Old Testament. Uh, One example is Hosea chapter 2 and verse 16. We read this. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord For generations, God's people had longed for this groom to come restore them to a right relationship. Uh, They mourned and they fasted and they waited. And so, do you see the incredible claim that Jesus is making? He's saying, I am him. I am the groom. Israel's expectation for God the bridegroom is fulfilled in me. This is no time to fast. It's a time to feast. I've come to betroth you to God forever to make union with him possible. How would he do this? I think the second part of verse 15, uh, Jesus gives us a hint. He says, the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away. Then they will fast. To win us back to God, the bridegroom would have to be taken He would have to lay down his very life to pay the price of his own blood. And like the perfect groom, Jesus sacrificed himself for his bride. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 5 verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This this really is the good news of the gospel You see, each one of us here was made for a close union with our creator God, and yet none of us have been able to live up to that calling. We've been incredibly unfaithful to him in thousands of ways. We've broken this union, and as a result, we deserve to be cast away from him and his blessings forever. And yet, it was when we had no hope of ever making ourselves right with God that Jesus made a way by giving up his own life on a cross. By willingly dying, Jesus dealt with the sin and unfaithfulness forever. Not by ignoring it or making us pay for it, but by accepting the just punishment for sin that we deserved in our place. And now, because of his grace, through trusting in what he did, we can be restored. We can experience true union with him again, with Jesus as our faithful and committed Savior. And friends, this is a reason to celebrate. Just as Jesus' disciples weren't fasting, but instead celebrating, so we have cause to celebrate. For Jesus wed us back to God, he offers us forgiveness. We can have relationship with him instead of being cast away. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we want you to know you're always welcome here. uh, But we want you to know that the joy of being united with Jesus, being made right with God, is, is unlike anything you've experienced. No matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've said no to him, thought little of him, Denied his existence, Jesus stands ready to receive you if you'll come. There's a celebrity vocal coach in L.A. Her name is Kira Fontana. And she gives a a pretty amazing testimony of her conversion to Christianity. Uh, She tells of this deep emptiness and joylessness that used to be in her heart, despite the worldly success she had experienced. Uh, Listen to how she describes this. She says, Alone one night in my new home, I felt I had truly reached the end of myself. I cried out to God with a desperation and sadness I had never felt before, asking, why did you even make me? And she goes on to say, But since I put my faith in Christ, God has redeemed everything that was lost in my life. He has freed me from the prison of my selfishness, rescued me from darkness, and brought me into his glorious light. He has given my life new purpose, equipping me to serve his kingdom and glorify his name with my music. In him, there is no greater joy. Friend, Jesus would come to you today, right now, and offer not a religion or a set of rules, but himself, the one who brings joy. And then for us as a church, uh, let me ask you this. Uh, Does your life as a follower of Jesus exhibit this kind of joy? Like the evident joy we see from uh, Jesus' disciples as he was with them, uh, would your co-workers see this kind of joy in you, your family members? Does our life together as a church exhibit this kind of joy? When we come together on Sundays, does our singing make Jesus attractive? Uh, The way we interact with one another, the way we care for one another. Now, of course, I'm not talking about this kind of blind optimism that just pretends everything's good, but a joy that knows of God's goodness in Christ in the sorrow and the pain we experience. Could it be that the times of joylessness you experience could be helped by refocusing yourself more often on what God has done for you through Jesus? We can all grow in this. I need to grow in this. And so let's pray. Let's pray that God would help us grow in the fruit of joy, and that you'd receive this gift by placing yourself near the gospel often. I wonder what that might look like for you this week so jesus brings the joy of union with god and number two jesus brings the joy of a new covenant look with me at verse 16 and 17. no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch will pull away from the garment making the tear worse neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. So Jesus continues his answer to John's disciples by exploring two images that are essentially inappropriate pairings, uh, things that don't fit together. He talks about these garments in verse 16. It's wrong to put a patch of old cloth on a new garment. Uh, Everyone knows if you do that, it'll just rip the whole thing up. The new cloth won't fit with the old. And then similarly in verse 17, he says, neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. Wine, of course, expands as it ferments. And so you'd Uh, Put this new wine into new wineskins, and the fermenting would stretch it out uh, and hold it. Uh, Each wineskin, though, has kind of one stretch available. And so once you use it, uh, it stretches out, and it's now an old wineskin. If you try putting new wine in the old one, it'll just burst. So what is Jesus saying? Essentially, he's saying that something new has come. Uh, Something new was happening, and this newness that Jesus brings uh, doesn't fit with the old. Like like new cloth and new wine, Jesus' presence as the Messiah, as God's chosen one, meant the inauguration of a new day. It was a new era, a, a new covenant, one that can't be contained by the old one. The old covenant, along with its practices and way of relating to God, was being fulfilled in Christ. And so the old practices, like this kind of fasting, weren't appropriate anymore. Uh, Jesus' coming uh, wasn't just a revision of the old covenant, it was a whole new one. This, so this wasn't like a, a software update on your phone, like version 13.4 of Judaism. Uh, No, he's come to fulfill Judaism and usher in a whole new kingdom. And this had always been the point of the Old Covenant anyway. Uh, The religion of the Old Covenant uh, was built specifically to prepare for Christ's coming. Jesus was saying, it's no longer time to prepare. It's here. I'm here. In what sense did Jesus fulfill the Old Covenant? Well, we could talk about many ways but uh, he didn't do it by throwing it all out and starting new for people to be right with god perfect obedience was still required Uh, this hadn't changed but now perfect obedience was being fulfilled by christ rather than having to be fulfilled by us he kept the old covenant perfectly and now grants that obedience to all who would trust in him I think the Pharisees, and maybe even John's disciples, were in danger of missing this. For them, it was this intense religious practice that earned God's favor. Instead of trusting Jesus, they might have tried to patch him in with their own kind of works-based religion. But Jesus came to provide a way to salvation that doesn't depend on human effort or ability. He came to provide us with the righteousness we need by the obedience not of our life, but of His. Now, I don't think most of us are tempted to conform to Judaism and Jewish practices. It's not a daily struggle for us. But I'd argue that many still relate to God based on Old Covenant principles rather than on Christ. What do I mean Well, if you've been coming along to church uh, for a while, thinking that your religious performance, your attendance here, uh, those are the things that really please God. Those are the things that will bring you joy. You are mistaken. The joy that Jesus brings is found not in your works, but the free gift of grace from God in him. And so, uh, come along to church, certainly. Uh, but know that we exist as God's means to point you to Him. Do not labor through religion, trying to be saved. Trust in Christ alone. Believe in what He has done. But even if uh, you're a Christian, we can fall into the trap of relating to God uh, without the new wine that Jesus brings. We even do this Inadvertently at times. Uh, Sam Storms, in his book, A Dozen Things God Did With Your Sin, uh, he recalls a lesson he learned from Tim Keller on this same subject. Uh, Listen to what he says. He says, Keller pointed to the sad fact that Christians often live in a if-then relationship with God. If I do what is right, then God will love me. If I give more money to missions, then God will provide me with what I need. This is a conditional relationship based on the principle of merit. But the gospel calls us to live in a because, therefore, relationship with the Lord. Because we have been justified by faith in Christ, therefore we have peace with God. Because Christ has fulfilled the law in our place, therefore we are set free from its demands and penalty. This is an unconditional relationship based on the principle of grace. He goes on, When our approach to Christian living is based on if, then, we will find ourselves immersed in the religious life in which our acceptance is based on obedience. But in the gospel-centered life, acceptance is based on grace and the mercy of God. Our motivation is joy in the promise of grace. Have you found yourself in a religious life where you're only accepted once you've done enough right things? Could it be that you lack joy in your Christian life because you're approaching God on your own merit without enjoying the new covenant that Jesus brought? Friends, take stock of your own heart. Maybe a good question to ask yourself is this. Is God pleased with you right now? at this moment if he is why is that and if you feel he's not why how does jesus living and dying affect the way you answer that question friends come into the joy of the new covenant the joy of god's free gift of grace in jesus christ so jesus brings the joy of a new covenant And then finally, Jesus brings the joy of a secure hope. One of the questions you may have at this point is, uh, Wait, what about fasting then? Does Jesus teach that we should never fast now because the new covenant has come? Well, that's a good question. I think we find our answer back in verse 15. So Jesus answers them, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. Jesus is basically saying, uh, now I am here with you as the bridegroom. Uh, It's not appropriate to fast, but I'm not going to stay. There will come a time when I return to my Father in heaven. and, And then as you await my return, you will fast. And so, it seems the time Jesus was speaking about is now, for us, after his death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. Now, of course, it's true that the Holy Spirit is with us. We can truly experience Jesus' presence with us through him and through our gathering together. But we don't now experience the fullness of that presence as it will be when he returns. As one pastor puts it, uh, in this age there is rightly an ache and a longing, uh, a homesickness inside every Christian that that Jesus is not here as fully and intimately and powerfully as we want him to be. We mourn the suffering, sin, sickness, disease, injustice, and death that still fills our world and, and our lives. As a result, there is an appropriate place for Christians to fast. It would be appropriate, for instance, to uh, abstain from food for a meal or, or maybe a day in order to pray for a church member who's in poor health, to seek God that, uh, for a family member to come to know Jesus. But unlike fasting in Jesus' day, uh, we fast now with the great hope that we're already God's children. We already have his ear and his pleasure with us. I wonder how much you've thought about the fact that Christians live in this kind of tension. In one sense, we are filled with joy now to already be citizens of Christ's kingdom, to have real union with God. But we also long for our joy to be complete when the bridegroom will return to put an end to all evil and sin and suffering once and for all. We'll live in a new heaven and a new earth with our King. Some have described this time the church lives in as the already, not yet. Uh, You can think of it maybe like an engagement, uh, like an engagement to be married. I remember when uh, my wife Elizabeth and I were engaged. It was a really joyful time. Family members were celebrating with us. It felt like we were uh, united in a new way as a couple. In many ways, it felt as if we were already married. Uh, She even had this ring to symbolize the long-term commitment we were making. Uh, But the ring uh, symbolized a reality that was not yet present. Uh, One day we would be wed officially, and that commitment would be uh, a present reality. It was a hope in the all-too-distant future. I think the Christian life is a lot like that. It's an already but not yet sort of existence. I think this is really helpful for us. It makes sense of our sometimes strange experience as Christians. Why is it that so much good has happened to us in Christ, and yet so many of us go through such sorrow and grief in this life? Well, it's because we've not yet entered our full joy. Our bridegroom is still to come. If you're hurting this morning, if you're here and you're thinking, gosh, I I can't even remember the last time I really felt joy in my life, friend, take heart. Our ultimate hope is coming, and it's certain. Jesus says in John 16, You have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you when we see him face to face our joy will be full and no one will take it from us and friends it's that hope that we must cling to it's bringing that hope to bear on our everyday lives that can give us true joy our bridegroom will return for his bride He's given us an engagement ring. Uh, He's guaranteed that he's committed to us by coming here the first time. And he's faithfully loving us. He's guaranteed that he will come for us again. And when he comes, we will feast with him at a wedding banquet unlike anything we've experienced before. Listen to how John describes that day in Revelation 19. In verse 7, he says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, that's us, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The joy we experience in Christ is only a foretaste of what we will experience on that day when we are seated with the greatest wedding anyone has ever been to, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where sin and death, sadness and pain, conflict and loneliness and depression will be cast out forever. The joys he will give us are beyond anything we've experienced or imagined, we will be with him, seated by his side, in his presence, forever and ever. And so, let me ask you the same question I proposed earlier. Do you crave a lasting joy, a joy that isn't based on circumstances, a joy that doesn't come and go with the seasons, but follows you everywhere you go? Come to the King. Jesus brings joy through making union with God possible. He brings joy through a new covenant. And he brings joy through a certain hope that he will return to take us home forever. Trust in him. Cling to him. Remember what he's done for you. As David Matthias says in his article on Desiring God, Our joy will not be perfect in this life. We will always strain and struggle. We will have our angst and anxieties. We'll have our ups and downs. Yet even here we have tastes. Not only is unbreakable joy coming, but even now we sample the sweetness in a thousand ways. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Amen. May that be true of us, church. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we praise you for your word. We thank you for this passage in Matthew. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for reminding us of your goodness in him. We praise you for sending your son to the world, that his coming brings great joy for a people who sorely need it. We ask, Lord, that you'd help us by your Spirit grow in the fruit of joy, that we would be able to rejoice in you always, remembering what you've done for us, looking ahead to what you will do. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.